any work I'm doing towards liberation is for all of us. And when I say that I'm a follower of Jesus and I am, I am emulating my healing life after the way Jesus healed, I am looking at the most marginalized, at the least of these, with the understanding that if I focus there, everyone else benefits from it. Jesus understood that. I think at some point the church understood that and understands that, and yet the practice of it is disconnected. Letitia James identifies as a dreamer, a healer, a teacher and facilitator, and as a bridge builder. Her vocation as an academic and recent seminary graduate lies where these intersections cross with social change work within her pastoral call toward building an eschatological vision through the work of embodying humility, listening, and holding space in the midst of both the perpetuation and the experience of trauma. Today on Religium, Letitia and I talk about her upbringing in the Pentecostal church, about violence and trauma in the midst of religious spaces, and about what forgiveness, compassion, and healing might require as she moves toward what she calls a theology of radical love. I'm Marin Haynes Marcassini, and this is Religium, a podcast that hosts conversations with ordinary, dynamic, and diverse young adults involved in religious community and practice. I have had vivid dreams as far back as I can remember. And I used to think that everyone had vivid dreams. Like, I thought everyone dreamt that way. It was like, oh, this is just regular. Until I would tell people the dreams that I had, and they were like, mm, no. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think so. Um, I, I used to be really afraid of my dreams because they felt so real to me. I would wake up in the middle of the night crying or laughing or whatever was happening and it just was like oh this is <laughs> this is different um and that also carried over a little bit into my daydreaming and I don't remember exactly how old I was but at a certain point in my childhood kind of came into this consciousness that the dreams weren't necessarily mine mm. or coming from my own uh unconscious and it was, I've always been very deeply connected to spirit mm -hmm. uh, in various ways. And so I felt strongly about that sometimes they were my dreams and sometimes they were coming from somewhere else. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and that was okay. Um, and as I got older and uh, consciousness raising continued, uh, and I realized I also had a heart for for justice issues, uh, those those dreams and my heart for justice issues began to intersect. Mm -hmm. And I, I very vividly see, you know, the kingdom on earth and sometimes we'll see what life could be like if we could heal um, in certain areas. And mm -hmm. so my work a lot of times when I hear people talk about their their dreams and their hopes and their visions for justice being realized in the world is to also um, help hold space for the healing that needs to take place in order for those visions to become reality. Mm -hmm. 
um, I firmly believe that unless we are willing to address the trauma that we have all endured because of systemic in injustice, uh, those visions will just stay dreams. Um, they won't come to fruition mm -hmm. um, because without healing, we're bound to repeat the mistakes of the past. Mm. Um, and those visions want to come true. <laughs> they do. <laughs> you know, and, and there are people who, who are driving those visions who want them to come true for mm -hmm. sure. Um, and I think for myself, stepping in, and we all have a, a role to play. And um, I believe that that's my role, is to be a container, to be a space holder for people to process, uh, to help people heal um, from their trauma and, and things of that nature. Yeah. yeah. How is this, how is like your, your relationship with spirit mm -hmm. um, unfolded in your life? What's sort of the spiritual background <laughs> of your childhood and where, sure. um, where did the consciousness of spirit and spirituality come into that? Yeah. Oh man. Okay. So it's interesting because even as I said it, and I talked about being connected to spirit from a young age, um, it's weird how it started for me because, so let's back up. I was raised in a Pentecostal household. Um, uh, Pentecostalism is a mostly very conservative, um, evangelical Christian church tradition. And um, there are several like Pentecostal denominations, uh, but the church that I grew up in weren't they, we weren't really affiliated with a specific denomination uh, that happened a little later. And even then, it was very loosely affiliated. Mm -hmm. So we were an unaffiliated Pentecostal church. Uh, and what made us um, even more unique was that we were a Caribbean. Pentecostal church. So the church had been formed um, by Caribbean immigrants immigrating to the U.S., mm -hmm. uh, settling in New York, uh, which is where I'm from originally, uh, and settling specifically in Brooklyn, mm -hmm. other parts of New York, but this was where I grew up. Uh, and Brooklyn, uh, this part of, these parts of Brooklyn kind of became like little Caribbean. <laughs> we just kind of replicated our own way of life in those in those in that borough and in those neighborhoods and mm -hmm. so the church that I grew up in um there were it was a large Jamaican population which is where my father's family is from but then other other islands as well you had uh, Trinidad uh you had the Bahamas represented folks from Grenada just various um Afro-Caribbean islands <clears throat> and so uh, growing up in that church, I, I was raised in a very particular way with very particular beliefs. <laughs> uh, some of those beliefs, um, you know, included that marriage is only between one man and one woman. Uh, you know, um, I was raised uh, in, in their language uh, that homosexuality is a sin, um, that there was a lot of... Um, Atone, atonement theology around um, what we would call, um, well, what I called really just blame theology, essentially, that the way that they saw 
uh, atonement, um, meaning uh, kind of payment for sins, was that if you did not live your life in a certain way, uh, then there was punishment, mm-hmm. right? That there was there, and so that was the environment that I was raised in. And so essentially that type of, of thought, that type of God talk, um, resulted in things like if you were to act on a homosexual lifestyle as, as they would put it, um, and say you fell ill, then the correlation would be made that you fell ill because you were not acting in accordance with God's will for your life. Not because you just happened to fall ill. Um, so things of that nature. And so I grew up with that um, in terms of my church upbringing. And then also grew up in a Jamaican household, which culturally is very homophobic um, and very anti-gay. And so the confluence of those two things uh, growing up was, was interesting. Um, I was very devout in my upbringing. I mean, it was the only thing I knew, right? That's what happens. It's, it's the only thing that you know, and so you don't really question it or think, you know, otherwise. Although I asked a lot of questions. Mm-hmm. Um, that was one thing that I did do. I did ask a lot of questions. <laughs> it did get me in a little bit of trouble. Mm-hmm. And yet I still believed. Uh, and I think this is going back to my earlier comment of that's where that connection to spirit came in. Mm-hmm. And those were two different things for me. Mm-hmm. And I don't know how I knew that as a kid, but I did. I knew that I was a deeply spiritual person. I believed in a spiritual realm in spirit. And also I knew that whatever I felt connected to was different than what I was being raised in. Mm-hmm. And I wanted them to be the same. But on some level, I felt the difference, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. And so uh, as I got older and kind of came into my own consciousness, I just, something didn't feel right mm-hmm. about about my church teachings you know it was it was hard for me to reconcile this uh this man right because in my upbringing god was always male um who apparently loved us unconditionally right so much that he gave his only begotten son heard it every <laughs> sunday and yet seemed to want to punish me so harshly for things that didn't seem in my control. And I think I was like 10 when that first just, it just just didn't make sense. (laughs) I was like, this doesn't, this doesn't seem likely. Um, The other thing that was happening for me is uh, my biological mother died of age-related illness uh, three weeks before my fifth birthday. And... I remember that my father stopped going to church after my mom died. Um, I would still get sent to church with other family members, but my father never went to church. And uh, very soon after, he also took a job where he traveled a lot. So there was a good six-year period where I was in the guardianship care of uh, my aunt. And during that time, I think 
not having any parents around, like, and, you know, making a lot of these observations as a very inquisitive child and very curious. Um, I was curious about why my father stopped going to church or why he didn't go anymore but wanted me to go so much and different things like that. Um, and I also actually did not know how my mother died until I was 10. Um, it was this big secret. No one wanted to tell me what she died of, what happened. It was always she was sick. And so when I found out that she had been HIV positive and uh, later developed AIDS um, and that, and then marrying this now with the theology of the church that I was being raised in, something was very unsettling in my spirit. And I, the question that came up for me was, huh, if my church think my mother deserved to die and no one wants to feel that or believe that and you know and it was it was that was one of the questions I actually did not say out loud because it was just a little too hurtful too scary um the unknown of it all um but in my logical mind, right, if I took the teachings that were being given to me, okay, well, there's a certain way to live, and you do that, and God is pleased with you, but then if you don't do that, then certain bad things can happen to you, and I knew that AIDS was one of those bad things that fell into that category, so then it was like, oh, well, then what else do I do with this information? Um, and so that was difficult, and... I started going to church less and less. Um, eventually my father uh, came back into my life full time and remarried and then I moved in with them. So then at that point I wasn't really going at all. Um, and so in that period, I started exploring different things. I remember getting really interested in Wicca, as you do in the late 90s in New York. <laughs> I was really obsessed with the TV show Charmed. And I was like, what's, is this a real thing? What's happening here? Um, no, but you know, that was more so just playful. Um, but then also like learning more and realizing what it was, was realizing that there were other ways of practicing spirituality mm -hmm. and I hadn't had that before. And so I wanted to know and, um, you know, meeting classmates who were Muslim. Um, I knew uh, I had had classmates who were Jewish growing up in Brooklyn. I lived, we lived um, in in proximity to a few Orthodox Jewish neighborhoods. And um, also my church, um, for all intents and purposes, is, is pro-Zionist. So mm -hmm. there was this understanding of Judaism that was already there. But, you know, in my child's mind, I was like, okay, it's just like related to Christianity because that's the way it was presented to me. Mm -hmm. So even learning more about Judaism growing up uh, was, was beneficial. And then um, I remember my freshman year of college was the first time I really got an education around Israel and Palestine. Mm -hmm. And my, prof my professor was a black woman and she was just, she wanted you to have all of the information 
possible for all the things. Um, and I was really into Octavia Butler and my favorite book was Kindred. And so just, I was like a sponge. I just, I wanted to know how other people worshiped and what they did and what they believed and why and what was going on. And I credit that to that little seed that always, I was always connected mm -hmm. to some type of spiritual something, mm -hmm. even if I couldn't name what it was. Uh, and and I kept identifying as a Christian because it was still the only thing I knew. Mm -hmm. uh, and so was fine doing that at the time while I kind of went on my journey of exploration and various things and thought maybe I'd become Muslim. Because I was like, oh, I, this, some of this actually makes a lot of sense to me. And, you know, but then didn't, didn't really settle. Um, and then <laughs> when I was... 15, I realized that I was attracted to other girls <laughs> and it basically stopped everything for me. And because of how I had been raised, a lot of internalized uh, self-hatred mm -hmm. presented itself. Mm -hmm. And I went into this very, I don't even know how you would describe it. It was almost like a fugue state. <laughs> and I would come home from school and I would turn on Joyce Meyer and I would just basically like inundate myself with the same messages I had been raised with um, because I believed that I was gonna go to hell. Mm -hmm. And I would go in my bedroom and I would pray every single day mm -hmm. and I say God I know this is wrong I I, I remember exactly the prayer it's like I know that this is wrong um, I've been told that this is wrong and so I know that this isn't coming from you I know this is coming from the devil and so if you would just take this away from me I you know like I, I would really appreciate it sorry um, I would really appreciate it you know like whatever you need me to do and every day I would just like keep praying um, and just believed, right? Like, if I believed hard enough, and if I prayed hard enough, and if I followed God enough, that he would take it away. Um, and so I did that pretty consistently for, like, two years. Um, and it was interesting because at the time, I was not living in a very religious place. Mm -hmm. uh, I was living in Geneva, Switzerland, mm -hmm. and none of my friends were religious, mm -hmm. with the exception of one, um, and, and she's Muslim. Uh, and uh, we were really close, and so we kind of bonded over coming from like very conservative religious up upbringings, and our, of course our fathers got along really well. <laughs> whole thing. <laughs> Um, and um, I remember being petrified to tell her, and so I never told her. I never told anyone until like my senior year of college, um, of high school, sorry. Um, and I finally told one of my friends in our circle. And she was like, 
it's fine. It's okay. And I was like, no, it's not okay. I was like, you're not religious. You don't understand. And, um, you know, trying to like, talk to her about it and like get her to understand like why it was such a big deal yeah. um, for me. And it was just very difficult. And I stayed in that place for a really long time of just like going back to the really fundamentalist, really evangelical, um, place and I think during that time it actually kind of blocked my connection to spirit mm -hmm. it was weird it was ironic how it happened <laughs> I, I didn't feel as spiritually connected even anymore um and in hindsight I know that it's because you know I was I was kind of doing rote things and that I thought I needed to do mm -hmm. um but not actually connecting to spirit that would mm -hmm. actually fulfill me uh, and so it wasn't until, ooh, fast forwarding a lot, it really wasn't until I, I graduated from college mm -hmm. that I finally um, left Pentecostalism mm -hmm. altogether. Um, it was a really long process. Uh, I remember uh, one of the things I learned in seminary uh, was about the difference between embedded and deliberative theology. Mm -hmm. And embedded theology is, you know, what you grew up with, what you're taught, and all that jazz. And deliberative theology is this. It's, it's when you, okay, this is what I was taught, and let's see, do I actually believe it, or do I believe it because it's what I was told? And you kind of do that, and you, you take in new things, and you throw out old things, and you keep some of the old, and I didn't start doing that process until after I left college. Mm -hmm. uh, and so it took me, it took some work. <laughs> it took some work and it took some time. And uh, it wasn't until seminary um, that I stopped identifying as a Christian. Mm -hmm. And the reason for that had more so to do with um, The fact that Christianity is so wrought with so much strife and different and and difference and not just like this progressivism versus fundamentalism type argument, although that is part of it, but um, more so around my identity as a black person, um, as a lesbian, uh, you know how. how learning how to navigate identifying with a religion that was persecuting me um, was difficult. Mm -hmm. And also, I came to know spirit through Jesus. And mm -hmm. I'm really thankful for that and proud of that. And so I didn't want to give up Jesus, but I knew I couldn't identify as a Christian mm -hmm. anymore. And then spirit gave me Howard Thurman. And I started reading Howard Thurman, and he gave me the language of mysticism mm -hmm. and gave me the identity of follower of Jesus mm -hmm. uh, and gave me the understanding of mysticism and social justice and healer work, right? Because he was a big, huge part of the civil rights movement, mm -hmm. but he wasn't in the forefront, no one really knew about him, and he was in the background doing the pastoral care and the healing and the holding. And 
reading about him, I was like, oh my gosh, yes, this is it. This makes so much sense. This is what I've been trying to articulate and say. Uh, and so now I'm at this place when people ask me, I tell them, I said, you know, I'm a follower of Jesus because I came to know the divine through Jesus. And also I honor and respect all of the paths that one can take to get to know the divine and acknowledge. For me, there are many. Mm -hmm. um, I believe that spirit is in and through all of us and in all things, um, which is a far cry from <laughs> what I was raised to believe. <laughs> so it's interesting to think about, um, you know, but I still hold Jesus' teachings very, they're very dear to me. Uh, they, they inform me as a healer. Mm -hmm in the work that I do in my in my everyday life. So for me, um, even, even though the tradition I came from tells me that who I am is wrong, mm -hmm. I will never try to take someone's beliefs from them. Yeah. Because I understand how fundamental it is to existence. Mm -hmm. Right? And so... While it's harmful and to me, and painful to me, to know that there are people I love who believe that I'm wrong, like as an individual, not like my opinion, like that like who I am is inherently wrong mm -hmm. um, because I happen to be attracted to other women. Mm -hmm. I would never want them to feel the pain of having their belief system robbed from them. Mm -hmm. um, I'm curious about your connection to the Afro-Caribbean traditions mm -hmm. of uh, like the, maybe the ones that got discarded mm -hmm, in, your, mm -hmm. um, in your Christian tradition. Yeah. And if you've brought those into your consciousness and how mm -hmm. they've informed who you are. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, that's a great question. So it's interesting because while... Well, Pentecostalism and the Black Church will never, I don't think they, not never, but I don't think they will consciously name that there are syncretic elements to their, to their worship. There are many, many syncretic elements and um, without them, it wouldn't be the Black Church. And so to talk about whether or not I've brought in the elements I haven't. It, it's that I've continued the tradition. That they were already there. Uh, and so uh, dancing is in my blood. I, you know, I've been dancing since I was little. And I, I danced both in church and outside of church. And uh, in, in different ways. <laughs> as, as some would say, secular and not so secular. <laughs> um, but um, I've always felt spirit in my body. Mm -hmm. And so that's how I pray, which was another area of contention growing up because there was a, this is how you pray. You kneel and you, you know, you say <laughs> the things. And I was like, I don't, I don't, I don't like to talk to spirit like that. <laughs> it doesn't work for me. Um, and so I was, I was so thankful to get to a place of dancing and, um, I'm so thankful to my church home for 
teaching me how to dance. Um, cause that was, that was actually, they, that was one of the things that they did. Uh, and they, to this day, have a robust dance ministry. Uh, and so I think what has changed, the elements that have changed is that I am conscious of the syncretic elements and I actively continue to pull in newer elements. And that is definitely a difference. Mm -hmm. Um, because I'm, I, I think in most circles that's that's frowned upon. Mm -hmm. um, but you know, I bring in um, things like uh, one of my favorite groups is a group called Ibei, mm -hmm. and they're uh, twin sisters. And Ibei is actually uh, twin Orishas. Mm -hmm. That's that's who they named their themselves after, uh, and they have a song called River, and. I danced to that song uh, both at a chapel service um, at Pacific School of Religion and also at um, a service for my home church now, mm -hmm. uh, City of Refuge in Oakland for a baptism. Mm -hmm. And you know, it's not a gospel song, it's not a traditional Christian <laughs> song at by any means. And Actually, at the end of the song, there's a chant that they do to Oshun, mm -hmm. who is one of the Orishas. And um, I brought all of that into the space. And I don't think it was until afterwards that I realized how sacred that was. Mm -hmm. And perhaps for some people... <laughs> How blasphemous that was to dance for a Christian baptism to a song <laughs> that honors <laughs> Oshun. Um, and yet for me, none of it felt at odds. It, it made the most sense in the world that that's what I would do. Um, because because all of it, all of it belongs to God. All of it, regardless of what you name it. It's actually a really lovely pivot to the question of the institutional <laughs> church. Because... Um, you know, I never thought I'd be a member of a church again. I didn't. And then I moved here and attended City of Refuge a couple times, and it was the first time that I entered a space that blended the traditions I was raised with with a radical LGBTQIA inclusivity and progressivism and social justice. Mm -hmm. And I was like, what is this place? <laughs> because I had found a church before that was radically inclusive and did some social justice work, but I missed being in the black church. Mm -hmm. It was a predominantly white church and I missed that rhythm and I missed dance and I missed music. And so I thought that maybe, okay, I'm just gonna have to like, one week go to this church and get 
get the intellectual and next week go to another church and get social justice. <laughs> you know, I thought that maybe that's what I would do. Um, and some weeks I don't go to church at all. And, and for a while that was what was happening. I wasn't going to church and I was like watching podcast, I'm um, listening to podcasts or watching YouTube clips of various services um, or going to meditation or doing various things that, um, but I wasn't feeling fed fully. Uh, and so started going to CD of Refuge a little more um, and as most people do, fell completely in love with Bishop Yvette Flunder because she's amazing. <laughs> uh, and I just felt, something felt warm and inviting about it. Mm -hmm. And I decided to become a member, um, much to my own surprise. <laughs> uh, but I'm so glad that I did. And And in that knowing that the institutional church, big, big church, is very imperfect and yet still necessary. Mm. And so I say that because um, my, my most recent activist work has been around Black Lives Matter. And... Last year, um, there was a convening in Cleveland for the Movement for Black Lives where the various groups and individuals and everyone got together. It was oh, thousands of people. I think it was like over 2,000 people, almost 3,000 people or something. And um, I submitted a workshop. And the focus of the workshop that Spirit gave me uh, was healing from black church trauma in the quest for black liberation. Yeah, wow. And I, it was one of those things where I knew, right, from friends and my own personal experience that people had been traumatized by the black church in particular. But I didn't really do a lot of, like, research, mm -hmm. right? I, I kind of just, well, I didn't, like, <laughs> the the workshop was was given to me and I went with it. And then once we were there, I got the confirmation because way more people showed up than I anticipated. Mm. And we had an amazing conversation and went over the time of the workshop uh, about the ways in which people are currently craving for the church to show up in the way that they need. Mm. And they're not. And this isn't just in the black church. This is in the church across the board. Um, I've had conversations with non-black folks about similar feelings. Mm -hmm. um, there, people are craving a spiritual element, wondering where the black church is. Why aren't they showing up? Um, you know, one person told a story that they had organized an action and they were going to march and there was a church on, on the route um, and they reached out to the church to see if the church would offer like water and respite for people as they, as they marched and the church said no. 
and locked their doors the day of the action. Um, and that to me just isn't the church. I don't know who that is, but that is a, that isn't the church to me. And so I think there is, for those of us who are currently in seminary, um, it's because partially we're trying to figure out how to be the church that we need because mm -hmm. uh, we're not getting it. Um, and when I say church, I don't necessarily just mean Christian church. Um, I know for some people that it, it's different, um, but for me, I also mean just like spiritual fellowship mm. in whatever form that may come. Mm -hmm. um, and spiritual and support without me having to give something in return. Mm -hmm. Right? Like, and I don't, and I don't mean that like I just expect for churches to offer up all these things and to, and to not be supported what I mean by that is um, you're not expecting me to follow a certain number of edicts or, or tenets um, you're not expecting me to show up in a certain way in order to get that spiritual support mm -hmm. um, or to even pay a certain price which is also becoming a point of, a, of great tension more and more um, and making me really sad to hear of people turning turning folks out of churches because they aren't paying a certain level of tithes and I, I just don't understand um, how that culture I mean I understand how that culture came about you know we live in a capitalist society and also I expect more from the church right. And I'm curious what came up in your workshop and how it resonates just more broadly about what people are hungering for and yeah. they want the church to be showing up. Yeah. Um, people are hungering for um, the church to not just care about the afterlife. People are hungering for the church to care about their very real, very earthly needs right now. Um, people are hungering for the church to care about their current suffering um, and to not just chalk it up to it being a cross that you have to bear. Right. Um, they're hungering for good theology. People know that, that, that they're getting bad theology mm -hmm. and, and they know it, but they don't like, they don't know what to do about it. Right, they can sense it, and also they've been taught and conditioned to trust their leaders, mm -hmm. and so they want to trust that oh, it'll, it'll come or it'll work itself out. Mm -hmm. um, but they sense that they're not being taught the the, the nitty gritty stuff that <laughs> that they're craving for. Yeah. Um, they want they want that. They want those lessons. They want to make real life applications to things, and um, you know they're looking. They're looking for the church to get their hands a little dirty. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and in light of that, um, 
Black Lives Matter has given birth to so much theology and yes. theologizing. Um, and how might you how might you characterize some of what's going on there and how it how it sort of speaks into these theologies that are insufficient? Um <laughs> so I, I actually wrote a paper um a few months back uh called uh what the black church can learn um from the radical self lesbian queer transgender and bisexual women <laughs> and i wrote it in part because of the question you just asked and the observations that i was making about the movement for black lives mm -hmm. and one of the big observations is that it's being led by black queer women and um the ways in which they are crafting ideas and solutions to issues that are plaguing our community and they're doing so out of deep radical abiding love mm -hmm. and they're doing so while critiquing the ways that it's been addressed in the past or not addressed and critiquing in love and for me that is that is the that is the crux of the whole thing um is that these women who are leading these charges are doing so because they love black people and they love people mm -hmm. in general. And they love their communities. And they want to see their communities free and liberated and healed. And so they're they're taking up arms and they are bringing everyone with them. That's the other part of it is that there's no, oh, we're going to bring these people first. You wait your turn. Yeah. No, it's everyone or no one. Mm -hmm. And that's hard work and that's tedious work and it's thankless work, unfortunately, a lot of times. And... If it was a, if I had to like name it as a theology, I would definitely just call it a theology of, of radical love. Um, and if I if I dare to put myself in in that in that group. I can say for, for my own perspective that it's any work I'm doing towards liberation is for all of us. Mm -hmm. And when I say that I'm a follower of Jesus and I am, I am emulating my healing life after the way Jesus healed, mm -hmm. I am looking at the most marginalized, at the least of these, with the understanding that if I focus there, everyone else benefits from it. Mm -hmm. yeah. Jesus understood that. I think at some point the church 
understood that and understands that and yet the 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 the, the practice of it is disconnected and i think if the church were to look toward the leaders the the the, the black queer women leaders the movement for black lives and uh the queer women of color leaders um in in you know the fight for 15 and in um immigration reform and in um trans lives matter i think they would be able to see some of the practice. Yeah. It leads back to the initial place we started, <laughs> which is this sort of where this leads you in terms of your visioning and what, what, what becomes possible in, in the, the vision of sort of, of the, the kingdom, mm -hmm. what, what that looks like, mm -hmm. what that is. Um, and if you're a healer, where do I'm happy that um, you named it as eschatology because that's exactly what what I was describing. And uh, for me, very much so creating um, a, an eschatologic vision in, in the here and now is necessary. Um, you know, I have some, I know some folks who, again, come from the background that I was raised in and it's all about the, oh, well, just do what you need to do to get to heaven. Mm. And it's like, but something seems amiss there. For me if I'm if I'm doing all of this living just to be worried about what's gonna happen after I die I don't I don't necessarily think that's why we're here <laughs> um, and if I'm supposed to um, Do kindness and love mercy and walk humbly with God, then that needs to be translated in the here and now. Mm -hmm. And so <clears throat> when when I think about the vision and what the healing needs to happen, I think about the fact that we have to be willing to name that we've been harmed. And some of us aren't even there yet. Mm -hmm. um, and we have to be able to name that we have harmed. Mm -hmm. That at some, at some point we have all been harmed and have harmed. And if we can do that, we can start the healing process but you can't heal if you don't know that you have anything to heal from um, and you can't you can't help to facilitate healing if they have caused the trauma to begin with mm -hmm. 
so that would be for, for me step one of actually acknowledging oh I have been harmed by this messed up system we find ourselves in mm -hmm. and also because of this messed up system we find ourselves in I have caused harm now what This episode of Religium was created, edited, and produced by me, Marin Haynes Marcassini. Music on today's episode is called O to Float by Citro. Visit Religium on the web at www.religium.com, on Facebook, Twitter, and SoundCloud with the handle Religium Podcast, and it's available on the iTunes Podcast Store. Thank you, and see you next week.